Welcome to Built to Go, a van life podcast. I'm your host, Jeff Wagg, coming to you from the College of Curiosity. This episode 46, and we're going to talk about crashing your van. Or hopefully not, but you have to prepare for it anyway. We're also going to talk about your tire light on your dashboard when it gets cold out, command hooks, a great place to visit in Florida, and a resource recommendation that is full of junk. Welcome back, everyone. Thank you so much for being here. Just a little personal note. This is being recorded in College of Curiosity Studios, a.k.a. my basement, but that's about to come to an end. I am moving closer to the downtown of Chicago, and I don't think it's going to impact the podcast, but that is coming up. And I have this thought that maybe I really should just record all the podcasts in the van. I mean, that would be fair, right? Why don't I just kind of turn the van into a mobile recording studio, which really doesn't mean anything more than having a laptop in there. I don't know. We'll see what happens. But in the meantime, while I'm thinking about setting things up in the van to be how I like, which is what we like to talk about, one thing we also have to talk about is what happens if you're in an accident. Now, motorhomes, which, let's face it, we are attempting to build here on our own in our self-built camper vans. They're kind of homemade motorhomes or trailers or whatever you're up to. Professionally built ones are designed by engineers and they take into account things like what's going to happen if this rig gets into an accident because they're responsible for the safety of the occupants. If you are in a vehicle crash and something fails in that vehicle, we have a whole establishment in place saying that the auto manufacturer, the RV manufacturer, has to do certain things to protect the lives of the occupants within reason. I mean, if you have somebody who drives their RV off a cliff at 100 miles an hour, if they could get it up that fast, I'm assuming downhill in this case, then yeah, they're probably off the hook. But if they get into a 35-mile-an-hour crash and, say, they hit a telephone pole and the refrigerator breaks free and flies forward and whacks them in the back of the head, well, yes, the RV manufacturer could be found liable for that. Now, of course, I'm not a lawyer and I'm not really interested in lawyerly things. What I am interested in is your safety. So whatever you are doing, whatever build you are doing yourself or buying or considering, I want you to take a step back and think what's going to happen when this thing crashes. Now, my van is built with IKEA cabinets, and they are, quote unquote, firmly secured to the floor and the walls of my van. That is that if you come up to my vehicle and get inside and try to move the cabinets, they don't move. They're pretty firmly on there. But they're just on there with self-tapping screws and zip screws and some spreader bars and just whatever I had on hand that would have worked at that time. The truth is that if I get into an accident in my van, all of that furniture is going to break loose and become missiles. It's true. It absolutely is true. I should be driving that thing wearing a crash helmet. Or ideally, and this is definitely something to consider if you are starting out and building a new vehicle, I should have a partition between the driver's space and the back. That way, anything that breaks free is going to get stopped by the partition. And as I've discussed earlier, partitions have all kinds of other advantages too. 
In fact, my van came with a partition. It was a solid steel, professionally made partition, and yeah, that thing probably would stop bullets. But I took it out. I took it out for two reasons. One is that I couldn't get from the front of the van to the back of the van through the partition because there was no door. That's something I think is important. And the other is it took up space. Now, my NV200 has just exactly enough space for me in all of my six feet to lay down and sleep. Even the partition took up space that would have prevented me from sleeping well. But I did so understanding that I was taking a risk in doing so. And how do I know it's a risk? Because I have been in an accident in a motorhome. I've actually been in a couple, I'm ashamed to say, but I have driven a lot of motorhomes. I was in an accident in a Toyota Mini Cruiser. I believe it was a 1983. And I rear-ended somebody partially because I was distracted and partially because I didn't understand how an intersection worked. This was in Utah, and they had a fancy new kind of intersection I'd never seen before. And it, it confused me. But ultimately, it was because I wasn't paying enough attention. And yes, it was my fault. Now, it was a fairly low-speed crash. I couldn't have been going more than 15 miles an hour. But what happened was the motorhome hit another car and stopped instantly, or within a couple feet. And I had rear cabinets over the sink. This was a rear bath unit, so the sink was right by the rear window. Cabinet opened, and my tea kettle flew out the entire length of the motorhome. Okay, it was a 17-foot motorhome. It wasn't that far. And hit me right in the back of the head. Ouch. Yes, it did hurt. No, I was not injured, but only because it was an empty tea kettle and it just doesn't have a lot of mass. But if that had been a can of soup, it could have been a lot worse. Now, that was a professionally designed and certified RV that happened in, and the cabinet stayed in place. In fact, when I had that RV repaired, nothing needed to be repaired in the back, but the doors came open. Your doors will come open in a crash unless they are securely locked in some way you have never considered. And this is a thing to think about. Your side cabinets are probably safer in a head-on collision. Most of your collisions are going to be the direction the vehicle is going. Sure, you can get hit from the side, but that is less likely and is usually at less speed. Cabinets that open from the back towards the front, they're going to open. And all that stuff is going to fly, well right at your head. So think about that. Also think about how strong your cabinetry is. I don't think any IKEA cabinetry is capable of withstanding a car accident. They're not designed for that. Sure, my bottoms and sides are attached firmly to the vehicle, but that doesn't mean the entire cabinet's not going to fly apart and fly forward. My plan is to never get in an accident, but you know, best laid plans, we know how that goes. No matter what kind of van or RV you have for an accident, these things are horrible, but you can mitigate. So like I said, you want to put in a partition. That's good. The other thing you want to do is secure your cargo. Now, the truth is, and this is a little hard to believe, if you have a lightly built rig where you're actually using the D-rings and you have straps around your stuff, that's more secure in many cases than if you have custom built your cabinetry. Because those D-rings will hold in a crash, and those straps will hold in a crash. They're designed for that. Your cabinetry probably isn't, unless you considered, hmm, I better build this so that if there's a crash, it will stay in place. And, well, maybe now you will. 
So you've probably seen crash test videos. Remember, well, maybe you don't, but in the 80s, there were these crash test dummies. Not the band. I'm a big fan of the band. But I mean the actual dummies, and they had these characters that would advertise, save your life, wear a seatbelt, all this kind of thing. Car crash tests are interesting to watch because they are shot in super slow-mo, and you can see exactly what happens in a crash. And if you ever watch one, the first thing you'll notice is that, wow, Airbags are very fast and are a very good thing to save your life. But did you know that they also crash test RVs? Yeah. Watching an RV crash head on to another vehicle at 35 miles an hour will definitely change your perspective on how safe these vehicles are. ADAC is a German car club and they actually did a car crash with what's basically a Travato in the US. It isn't a Travato, but it's a motorhome like a Travato. It's a it's a Ram Promaster RV Class B without any added-on things. It's just the van, a high top with a solar panel and with the vent. It's like a really nice self-built camper, except it's built professionally. And they drove it at 35 miles an hour into a minivan and recorded it. And I urge you, if you are at all interested in van life, watch this video. Just watching this video is going to give you some insight into what can happen if your van crashes. So I'll have a link in the show notes. If you want to search for it, search for Fiat Ducato Motorhome versus Citroen C5 Estate. That's most of the title. I'm going to describe it for you anyway, because maybe you're driving, you don't have a chance to look at it, whatever. The cars crash head-on but they kind of hit at the corners, which is how they do this thing. First thing you notice is the airbags go off very quickly, but also the front passenger seats deform quite a bit, which is fine. They're designed to do that. They're the automotive seats and that's okay. But then there's a camera in the back. This professionally built RV has all of its cabinets just disintegrate and fly forward. Now in this test, there's a a rear seat that have two kids in car seats And their seat, which was built in the back of the RV, literally comes apart. Now, it looks like they probably would have survived. It's not quite that bad, but everything in the back of the van flies forward. All the stuff completely comes apart. And if it wasn't for the back of the kids' seats and the bathroom that's right behind it, everybody in front would have been hit with all that stuff flying forward. So go ahead, watch the video. Try not to get into an accident, but when you're buying a camper van or building a camper van or just traveling in one, take a moment to think, what's going to happen if there's an accident? And what can I do to make it not quite so bad? Tech Talk. It's starting to get a little bit cold up here in North America, and I am very happy for you folks down there in Oceania who are finally getting to see some sun. Congratulations, you have survived the winter that we are just about to enter. And many of you may have gotten up in the morning and gotten in your van and turned the key, and there's that little flat tire icon on your dashboard. Yes, the tire pressure monitoring system light has gone off to give you a nice surprise today. And if your van is like mine, it doesn't tell you which tire is low. It just says, hey, one of your tires is low. Here's what's going on. It's probably not a flat. It's probably not a leak. In fact, everything is probably just fine. What's happened is it's gotten cold. And when air gets colder, it takes up less space. That means it provides less pressure for the tires. And that means the sensors in the TPMS say, I don't have enough air. Turn on the light. Beep. And there's the light. 
So, how do you fix it? Well, you've heard me talk about air compressors quite a bit on this show. I'm a big fan of having an air compressor in your van. And if you have a larger van, you might need an 80-pound per square inch air compressor. But basically, that's the answer. You just go around and put some air in all your tires. And it's a good idea to have a good tire pressure gauge so that you can make sure you're not exceeding the specifications. You do have to look on the tire to see what its maximum pressure rating is, but you also want to look on the inside of the driver's door. There is supposed to be on there pressure ratings for all the tires, and sometimes it's not intuitive. For example, my vehicle has the same tires on all four wheels. Not all do. And I have different pressures in the tires. My rear tires are 48 pounds per square inch, and my front tires are 44 pounds per square inch. And that is with the OEM tires. That can vary depending on what tire you have. Now, the tire pressure monitoring system in your van is going to be set to read the OEM tires. And if you kind of go wild and put on bigger wheels that have a different tire pressure... Yeah, you might have to get that recalibrated. And honestly, I don't know how to do that. That sounds like something I'd have to Google. So, yep, on these colder mornings, you are going to see that light come on. Don't panic. If you've never seen this light before, all it's saying is that one of your tires has low pressure. If you see it while you're driving, pull over as soon as you can and check your tires because it probably means you have got a leak and it's going to affect your driving. But in the morning, on a cold morning, it's probably nothing. Tales from the road. So I just mentioned my Mini Cruiser. I love this little thing. This was my only vehicle. I didn't have a car. Just had a Toyota Mini Cruiser RV, fully self-contained. It was the little tiny Toyota pickup truck with a back on it. It had kind of a Class C style overhang. It had a dinette, and then there was a fridge and a couple of cabinets, and then a little tiny bathroom, a wet bath in the corner. I loved it. Perfect little rig for two people. Certainly difficult to find storage space, as it always is. But I drove it around all over the place, and I bought it in Massachusetts, and I ended up living in Utah with it. In the late 80s, my wife at the time and I decided just to go have some fun in the in the camper, and we got in and we drove out to the Great Salt Lake. Now, I lived in Salt Lake City. This wasn't a big adventure. This was about, you know, a 25-minute drive. But there's a rest area out there right after the Salt Air Resort, which has had a weird history, and I don't even know what it is right now. And we just pulled into the rest area, and we made some cinnamon rolls. That was kind of our thing. We were going to pull into the rest area, make some cinnamon rolls, spend the night, make breakfast, and then, you know, head back home. Just a little quick trip. But here's the story part. Not once did we ever even consider that somebody might knock on our door and say, hey, you can't park here. The thought never came up. And it wasn't so much that we were naive. I'm certain we were naive in many ways. It was that it wasn't a big deal. This rest area is just a pullout. There's no bathrooms there or anything. That was something anybody could do at any time and nobody would question it. It was fine. Now, if you do that, you're going to look for signs that say no parking. You're going to check all the apps. There's just a lot more paranoia now with all of this. And it kind of makes me sad. And I'm not saying that paranoia is unwarranted. I think it is more difficult to just park and do whatever you want now than it was in the 80s. For a couple of reasons. One is that more people are doing it, and some of those people are a nuisance. I'm sad to say that not all van life people are polite. Some of them leave massive piles of garbage, and the number two part is some of them never leave. 
We have an awful lot of people living in their vans right now. And they're from all walks of life. Some of them are travelers. Some of them, that is their home and they don't intend to move anywhere. So they're looking for a permanent place to park and that causes problems. So I'm just telling that story as just something I noticed that, hey, things have really changed a lot in 30 years. I'm kind of sad about that. I really wish I could have that same carefree attitude that I did then. All right, a product review. So not all product reviews have to be about something fancy and complicated and expensive. I want to talk about something practical and affordable and something everyone should probably have a few of in their van, and that is command hooks. Command hooks are those sticker hooks that you put on that come off when you want them to. They have this tab you pull and it kind of stretches the sticker and the hook comes off. These things have a place in van life. Now, they are not the strongest things in the world. You're not going to be wanting to hang your pots and pans and they do break if you hit them. But I found them to be super useful in the early stages of my build when I wasn't really sure where I wanted to put hooks. And I think hooks are a very, very important thing in a van. I don't think you can have too many hooks. What I did was I took the command hooks and I put them where I thought I wanted to have a hook so I could hang things. And in some cases, I did replace them with metal hooks. In others, I realized that was a stupid place to put a hook and I took it off and there was no harm done. They actually make these things in all different styles now and some of them are very clever. There's a new one I saw that is a specialty design just to hold spray bottles. So you could get a bunch of these for under your sink, for example, and then hang all your spray bottles. And they also come in little tiny metal hooks and in big honking plastic hooks. But again, I'm not going to trust them with a bag of groceries or anything like that. I have found that they don't fall off the wall, at least the bigger ones, unless you take them off the wall. Some of the little ones don't seem to adhere as much, and that kind of makes sense because they don't have as much surface area to stick to. But the bigger, more traditional ones, those stay on there pretty darn good. As long as you put them on a, a clean, flat surface, they're going to stay until it's time to take them off. So they're not the cheapest things in the world. Um, what I do is I look if and see if there's a sale on them, and then I pick up a box. And I literally just have a box of them in my rig at all times. And then if I need a hook, I'll put the command hook there. And if I find out it's really super useful, then I'll go get a metal hook and permanently install it. So command hooks, I'll have a link in the show notes, but I'm pretty sure you know where to find them. Okay, a place to visit. I'm so tired of talking about COVID, so I'm not going to. What I'm going to talk about is something you can do in your van that will take you back to the 1940s. And that is go to the drive-in. Yes, drive-ins are actually making a comeback these days, although some of them never went away. I'm going to talk about a specific drive-in. This one is in Lakewood, Florida. It is called the Silver Moon Drive-In Theater, and it opened in 1948. And they are still showing first-run movies there. You have to pay per person, but the prices are very cheap. It's about $6 for an adult and $2 for a kid. So you and your significant other for 12 bucks can go park there, make your own popcorn in your rig, and watch the show, which will have sound playing out of your stereo in your rig. Anything that picks up FM radio, you can hear the sound of the movie couple of caveats. Obviously, vans are bigger than cars, so they make the vans park at the back, but that's okay. 
and it's for comfort, well, it's as comfortable as you want to make it. In fact, they, in some cases, will let you park backwards. You have to get permission to do this and look out the back of your van instead of through the window. Or you might be able to sit on the roof of your van if you're in the very last row. Again, check with the drive-in, specifically Silver Moon, but any drive-in and see what they'll let you do. A lot of times they'll let you do whatever you want as long as you're not bothering anybody else. Let's not forget that having fun is an important part of life. It's difficult to do a lot of things. Going to the drive-in is still an option, and it's not difficult. It isn't even expensive. Okay, resource recommendation. There are junkyards all over the country, and if there's one thing I've learned about junkyards is that they are not the most tech-savvy folks in the world. And by that, I don't mean about cars. They certainly know a lot about that. I mean about, like, the internet. They're not big on having a website full of inventory and all that, and you honestly might not be able to find them on the web. So there is a website for that. It's called junkyardsnearme.net. <laughs> junkyards near me. And that's it. The whole purpose of this website is so you can find a junkyard. Now, there are two reasons why you might want a junkyard. One is that you want parts for your van or car or trailer or whatever you're using. That's kind of obvious. And some of you with older rigs, this is where you're going to get most of your parts. Because if you've got a 1982 Dodge, you may not be able to go get a new steering wheel cover from the Dodge dealer. You might have to go to a junkyard. But this website also has RV junkyards and RV salvage companies. And just like we were talking about at the beginning of the episode, if you wreck your RV which is sadly easy to do these days. To total an RV doesn't require that much because body repair is so expensive. If you hit a telephone pole at 10 miles an hour, you might total your rig, even though everything in the back is fine. Well, these salvage places buy these totaled rigs and take everything out of the back and then sell it to you. So if you're looking for a specialty sink that's designed for an RV or an RV fridge or something like that, an RV salvage yard might be the place and you might have one in your backyard and you don't even know about it like i just found out there's one in missouri i had no idea it was there so i'll have a link in the show notes but it really is just as simple as junkyardsnearme.net give it a look and you might find that one part that you can't find anywhere else okay q and i've been seeing this question a lot and i i i sympathize with the folks asking it There are folks out there trying out van life or living in their cars, whatever, who aren't building anything. It's a minivan they're in or something like that. And they have no intention of installing a heater for whatever reason. Maybe they can't afford it or maybe they don't like the idea of burning something in their vehicle or they don't want to install batteries or whatever. Their rigs, they can do whatever they want. But they still want to sleep in their van in the winter. Well, how do they do it? Here's a few tips that might help out. The first thing is, remember, having heat in the winter for camping is a major luxury. People have been camping in the winter for literally as long as there have been people in colder climates, and often they didn't have heat. They would find other ways to keep warm. If you've ever gone camping in the winter in a tent, as I have, and you're hearing my voice right now, you survived, and I hope it was comfortable. So the number one thing you can get to make your wintry stays comfortable is a really good sleeping bag. I'm not going to go into all the different types of sleeping bags. I can just tell you basically that mummy bags are warmer, down sleeping bags are very warm, but they also have cons like mummy bags aren't that comfortable for many people, and down sleeping bags require a lot of care, etc. 
But invest in a decent sleeping bag if you can. A good sleeping bag is literally all you'll need to sleep in most winter weather. Now, if you want a little bit of assurance that you're going to stay warm in there, there's always the hot water bottle trick. That is, you get a rubber hot water bottle or a Nalgene bottle or, heck, even a Diet Coke bottle and fill it with hot water. Not boiling, but as hot as you can get it. A hot water bottle in a sleeping bag will give off warmth for hours. It is wonderful. Or if you just kind of want something for an emergency that you can have, so if you get really cold in the middle of the night, you want some heat and you don't want to have to get up and do anything about it, there's a product called Hot Hands, which I've talked about before, that's a chemical heat giver offerer. There's probably a better word for that. But that's what it is. You open the packet, air interacts with its iron filings and something else that's in there, and it basically oxidizes, and it produces about 130 degrees of heat. It's not too hot to touch, but it's very, very warm. And if you toss one of those in the bottom of your sleeping bag, it'll keep your toes warm all night. I mean, literally eight hours. These things last a really long time. Also, it is a myth that most of your heat escapes from your head. That was from a flawed study in the military Basically, they put a guy and measured his temperature and forgot to give him a hat. So, of course, he lost most of the heat through his head. But, uh, yeah, you don't have to freak out about that. If you're comfortable sleeping without a hat on, you're fine. But if you can sleep with a hat on, that's going to keep you warmer. And very important, I'm going to go back to this concept I've talked about earlier, the sacred socks. Have a pair of socks that are just for sleeping. Make them comfy, cozy, something you love, very, very warm, and then make sure during the day they are dried completely. That will be wonderful for you because honestly, they're called sacred socks because it's something you look forward to at the end of the day. No matter what you've done, you know you're going to put on these wonderful socks and they're going to keep your feet warm all night long. So in short, basically think of it as camping. What would you do to camp in the winter? And then do that same thing in your van. And you're going to be just fine. All right, let's talk about some van life news. I've actually got quite a bit of news this week. We're going to go to England for a little bit. The BBC is reporting that traveler families win court battle over living on land they own. I'll let you read the article, and of course there will be links in the show notes. But basically the concept is this. Can you buy a piece of land and put your RV or camper van on there and live in it? And in more and more places, the answer is no. Florida specifically has made this illegal. Yeah, that's right. You can't buy a piece of land and camp on it permanently. It's uh, kind of a loss of freedom, and maybe my libertarian streak that I don't really have much of is coming out here, but it really annoys me that I can't do what I want on my own land. At any rate, in the UK at least, one family has won against their local council. If you're not familiar with the term travelers... That's a specific group of people in Europe. They're also known as Romani in some cases, but it's a culture of van life, basically. Now, they've been doing this since much longer than van life, but they're nomadic folks, and they live in their vehicles, and they have for a very, very long time, well over 100 years. And unfortunately, some folks don't want them around, so that's where these laws come from. So anyway, read the article. It's on the BBC. There's a link in the show notes, and good for them. I'm glad they get to live on their own land. Now we're going to go to Minnesota, where CBS, the Channel 4 CBS up there, ran a report on how popular van life is getting. It's interesting that this is now as mainstream as it can get. It's on the regular news. And they did a survey, and they found that more Americans are willing to try van life 
because of the pandemic. Because of the pandemic, more people are willing to consider van life, perhaps because they feel more in control, perhaps they because they can move and they don't feel trapped, or just because they're worried about finances. All those things come into play. But that's on the news today on CBS Minnesota Channel 4. Again, link in the show notes with video. And if there's any doubt that this is all becoming mainstream, Fodor's, Fodor's Travel, the old travel guides that you know everyone used to rely on in the 20th century, has an article called, Here's What Van Life Is Really Like. It's very interesting. They got a bunch of Instagram accounts with an emphasis on diversity, a diverse group of people, all different ways to do van life. Now, this is Fodor's doing this. This isn't some startup internet magazine. This is the oldest company making travel guides that I know of. And that's what they're talking about. Us! I think it's kind of fascinating. And this is no longer such an alternate lifestyle. It's really becoming mainstream. And last but not least, I'm always saying that van life is inclusive of anybody living in something they travel in. And it doesn't have to be a van or a car or a trailer. In fact, it can be what this guy did. It can be a jet engine Yes, the headline here is a British man spent over 1,000 hours transforming a jet engine into a camper trailer for family road trips. This thing is amazing. He calls it the VC-10 caravan pod. VC-10 being the plane it came from, caravan being the British word for camper, and pod because looks like a pod. It's 13 feet long, it has two doors and a skylight, and it looks very, very cozy. You really should take a look. There's a link in the show notes. And you know, it's kind of amazing just how much space there is in a jet engine. So I will continue to say that van life includes anything that you can travel and live in. Well, folks, thanks for listening. This was episode 46. I absolutely appreciate you being here. Remember that we are out there on social media. If there is something you would like to hear or you have a complaint or whatever, you can always find me at builttogo.com. That's built to go with two T's, not three, not one. Also on Instagram at College of Curiosity and on Facebook as Built to Go, a Facebook group. And remember, until next time, prepare and prevent. Don't repair and repent.